Connecting is the title of our sermon today. We'll be looking at various passages, and some of you will be taking notes. Let me say the manuscript will be on the webpage uh, shortly, so you, if you miss something, it's a lot to cover. But I want to give you nine words that relate to the church, nine words that relate or describe church. Paul Turnier was insightful when he declared, there are two things that we cannot do alone. One is you cannot be married alone. And number two, you cannot be a Christian alone. I might throw in seesawing as well, but uh, think about that. One cannot be married alone. One cannot follow Christ alone. Pastor and scholar Eugene Peterson agreed. Our membership in the church, he says, is corollary with our faith in Christ. We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than we can be a person and not be in a family. Church is part of the fabric of redemption. Church is part of the fabric of redemption. The first word comes from Colossians 2, 2. The word is connection. Connection. The first of nine words to describe church is connection. Paul makes it clear that God cannot really be known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love with the church, with the community. In Ephesians 3, 17 through 18, likewise, Paul says the Christians are rooted and well-founded in love. Can they comprehend all the saints, the fullness of divine revelation only when we're well-founded in the love of community and the love of church family, then and only then, Ephesians 3, can we comprehend together with all the saints the fullness of God's revelation. We can only fully know God when we're connected to others who know Him. We can only fully know God when we're connected to others like the quilt who fully know him as well. Our culture, however, is going the other direction, promoting individual spirituality. This type of renegade religion concludes in an individual's relationship with God is no one else's concern. And a person's spiritual relationship is with the creator and not with community. As a result of this proliferation of personalized religion, There are many more who claim to be followers of Christ than who gather with the people of God on any given Sunday. You know, the reality is we have Easter every Sunday. You might let folks know that. It is a celebration of resurrection every single Sunday. Hebrews 10 says that forsaking the gathering together of community is unacceptable. Because to say Jesus is Lord is at one of the same time to say you're my sibling, you're my brother, or you're my sister in Christ. You see, the call of the New Testament is never to become an individual stand-alone follower of Jesus. The call of Christ is always one to connect to community. The first word is connect. The second word is family, family. 
A few years ago, we had a visitor fill out a visitor's registration slip in Sunday school, and she put down her name, address, and her phone number, and asked her, was she a Christian? She checked off yes, and then the next question was, are you a church member? And she wrote, little bit, little bit. Uh, are you a church member? Little bit. Uh, I read the visitor's card, and I chuckled. I appreciated her honesty, but I didn't like her theology at all. To call Jesus Lord is not to be a little bit of anything. It is an invitation to the family of God, to the people of God. We are never called to be little bit connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ. On the contrary, we're called to be connected to the family of God, to community. In the New Testament, Christians are depicted as loving like brothers love each other or sisters love each other. The New Testament borrows from biological language to describe the relationship that you and I and that we all have together with each other. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4, now as to the love of the brothers, Paul selects the idea of brothers, siblings, loving each other. Now, as to the love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It happens over and over again, this idea of sharing family love. It happens in Romans 12 and Hebrews 13 and 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1. We are to love each other like we're loving family. To call Jesus Lord is to call you brother or sister. A deacon in our church was sharing his testimony. As a young man, he had lost his father. He looked to the church family from this pulpit and declared, when I needed a father, you guys were my father. When I needed a mother, you ladies were my mother. When I needed siblings in Christ, you were my brothers and sisters. God's people always and everywhere in the New Testament are to love each other as if we're family. So strong is this New Testament witness that we should see each other as siblings that John concluded, we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not first love our brother whom we have seen. That's in 1 John. You can't love God whom you have not seen if you don't first love your brother who you have seen, 1 John 4. The family-like love among the images of the church. Well, that's our third word is images. What are the images for the church in Scripture? The first one is ecclesia. That's the word for church. It means the called out ones or those who are assembled together. Well, it comes from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. The ecclesia was nothing less than ancient Israel gathered around Mount Sinai, assembled together to wait for a word from God, a word from Yahweh, a word from the Lord. And Paul uses that powerful image, that word that was used even for ancient Israel in the Greek Old Testament, the ecclesia, and says that's what the church is. The church is the new ecclesia. The community centered around the Christ, the rabbi, the crucified and risen Lord. 
Well, there are other images. We are the called out ones like ancient Israel, the covenant people of God. But likewise, in Ephesians 5, we are the bride of Christ. Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride of Christ. Or we are, in Ephesians 4, we're the body of Christ. We are the hands of Christ. We are the feet of Christ, the voice of Christ the body of Christ. We're the new Israel or the people of God in Ephesians 2 or 1 Peter 2. We're the household or the family of God in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 3. We are a planting of God that brings forth fruit to his glory. We're this cultivation of God. We are the planting of God to bring forth fruit to his glory. Each local church, wherever she meets, represents this ecclesia, this covenant people of God. It is a local group of actual baptized believers. For example, Paul would often write, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church in, it might be to the church in Corinth, or it might be to the church in Thessalonica, but it's always a real group of people in a real city, baptized believers gathered together like you are this morning that represent the ecclesia, the covenant people of God. In the Acts of the Apostles, the local church is an expression of commitment to Christ. There we read about the church in Jerusalem or the church located in Antioch or the church located in Caesarea. Are you familiar with Revelation there? We have seven letters to seven actual local churches. The gathered people of God, real people in a real place, baptizing and confessing Jesus is Lord. That's the ecclesia. That's the church. Nowhere, not one place in Scripture do Lone Ranger Christians follow Christ apart from a localized body of Christ, institutionalized body of Christ. In fact, the local church, I say this with great confidence, the local church is as much a part of the teaching of the New Testament as is the deity of Christ or the creative powers of God. Church is an important New Testament word. The fourth word is purpose. The church is a local group of baptized believers, but the church must have a purpose. This week in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article entitled, Berlin's New Church of Nothing. Berlin's New Church of Nothing. They built a building where a church used to stand, and it was supposed to be for worship of people from different world religions. And they said Berlin is a diverse community, and now people from all religions can join into this building that represents all the religions, the main religions in former East Berlin, and they can gather together and worship. And by taking a little bit of architectural emphasis from each of these world religions, they actually created a, a building that is nothing, says the writer. It stands for nothing. It means nothing. It holds nothing dear. You see, the New Testament church is an organized body. It's not temporary. It's not a loose gathering of individuals. But rather, it is an institutionalized, gathered group of, of people with leaders. 
The church at Antioch, for example, had much more than just a, a passing purpose or the church at Rome or the church at Corinth or the church at Philippi or the church at Thessalonica. They were permanent and definite gatherings of the body of Christ. And the church doesn't have to sit around and wonder, what are we supposed to be doing? In fact, the one, the bridegroom has told the bride what she is to be doing. We are to go and to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them all that Christ has taught. We are to call others to follow Christ. We are gathered together every week to make disciples, to baptize them. The next hour, we teach them all that Christ has taught. Believers organized in order to fill the commands of the Great Commission. Any church that gathers, I've noticed churches sometimes will form a committee and they'll meet for months and try to come up with a, a purpose statement or a vision statement. I think the one that Christ gave us in Scripture is pretty good. Just, just go with Matthew 28. We are to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. We don't have to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wonder why we are here. We are here to win people to Jesus. We are here to make disciples. There's a fifth word. It's the word Christ. Now, this is really an oddity. Have you ever noticed this? That sometimes Paul so equates Christ and the church together that sometimes when he, you think he's going to use the word church, he uses the word Christ instead because Christ and the church are that closely super identified in Scripture. The fifth word is Christ. In fact, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Well, I'll give you those examples when the word church and Christ are used interchangeably. You remember when Paul's on the road to Damascus? He's going to arrest those who are followers of the way, those who are following Jesus. He's going to bring them back to Jerusalem for persecution and prosecution. And as he's on the road to Damascus, he sees a bright light and he hears a thunderous voice from heaven. That voice says, why are you persecuting me? I am the Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, he wasn't going to arrest Jesus. Jesus has already been crucified and ascended to heaven. He's going to arrest followers of the way, members of the church, or bring them back to Jerusalem. But Jesus says, when you persecute my church, you're persecuting me. I am the Jesus whom you're persecuting. When you inflict suffering upon the people of God, you inflict suffering upon the Lord of God's people. Secondly, there's such a super identification between the church and Christ that we learn that when we try to divide the church, that we are dividing Christ. You remember the church in Corinth, it was split into four camps. There was the Paul camp, the Peter camp, the Apollos camp, the Christ camp. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.13, though it was a church that was divided, Paul writes, has Christ been divided? No, it wasn't Christ. It was the church at Corinth. There were some who said, we're the church of Paul, and others, we're the church of Apollos, or we're the church of Cephas, or we're the church of Christ. And instead of saying, how can you divide the church? 
Paul changes words and says, how can you divide Christ? That you think he's going to say the word church, but he uses the word Christ because to Paul, the church and the Christ are so identified that they are one and the same. This is not a rare occasion in Paul, this super identification of church with Christ. Later in that same letter, he uses the human body to describe the church. Why some of us might be feet or hands or an ear or a mouth and we're all together in one body. We all use our different talents to function together as a, as a church. And so right there in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, he's describing the human body and you expect him to say, church is just like that. But instead he says, Christ is just like that. You see, to Paul, Christ and the church were one and the same. At least they were so closely connected that he could substitute one word for the other. So also is Christ. Instead of so also is the church. Christ and the church together as one in Paul's eyes. There's, a, there's another word. The sixth word is service. We don't come here to offer you a baptized, feel-good pop psychology. We're not just about dealing with your depression or helping you succeed over your stress or giving you four tips to be a better parent. Those things are important, but they're not our primary purpose. You see, we are here to serve. We are here to proclaim with historic Christianity that God has acted in history. And God has acted in the person of his son named Jesus. That Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that somehow God was especially active in his crucifixion and his glorious resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and now we await for Christ to return. That is our message. That is our service to this world. Archbishop William Temple said it best when he declared, the church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That the church is the only cooperative society in the world that we exist for the benefit of our non-members. We exist to bring those who are on the outside to the inside to convince them that Jesus is Lord, that they too can become part of Christ, which is to be part of his church. We're not simply a vendor of religious goods and services, trying to gain and retain more members by having the best ministries on the menu, our focus as a church is to our God-given mission to those who are outside the church and less about amusing ourselves inside the church. We are called to reach out to a lost and decaying world, a dying world, crying out this hope-filled message of the Christ we gather together for worship, but this just gets us ready to go out of these walls and to be the church and to bring people back who need to know and hear that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a seventh word. That's the word support. We all need a place where we can belong to a localized group of baptized believers to be a support to the saints around us. Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens. 
to encourage the faint-hearted, 1 Thessalonians 5. Henry Nowen told a young minister, the young minister had a, an elderly gentleman going into surgery in his church, and he told Henry Nowen, I don't have anything to offer him except for my, my hope that I'll, I'll see him on the other side of the surgery. And Henry Nowen told the young minister that no one facing surgery can come out on the other side unless someone is waiting for her or waiting for him. We are to be that support. No one can stay alive when no one is waiting on him. Yancey, Philip Yancey says, everyone who returns from a long and difficult trip is looking for someone to be waiting for him at the airport or the train station. Everybody wants to tell his story and share his moments of pain and exhilaration with someone who stayed back home, someone who was waiting for her to come back. There's an eighth word. Not only are we to, to support each other, but we're to draw boundaries for each other. We're to draw boundaries. The eighth word is boundaries. Without a community, we're each left a seed to drift in our own spirituality and our own beliefs. Scholar Robert Bella and his colleagues described this as Sheilaism. Sheila was a woman who said she looked at world religions and she'd pick some from this world religion and some from that world religion. And so Sheila just made up her own religion and called it Sheilaism. She was honest. We're just going to do, she's going to do Sheilaism. Well, we got Howieism and Robertism and Maryism. If each one of us forms our own private religion with our own private tenets, it's not to be that way. We're not to follow our individually tailored tenets of theology. We're to follow the gospel of the apostles preached and held in the New Testament. We can only understand God's word when it's interpreted in community. We're gathered together. We're learning that in our Sunday night hermeneutic series, that we best interpret scripture when we're together in community with the saints of all the ages. In fact, scriptures were written to the church. Paul, an apostle to the church at. Paul, an apostle to the church at. It is written, scripture, not to individuals, but rather to the bride of Christ, to the gathered people of God. The ninth word is everybody. Everybody. Church should be the one place on earth where everyone feels equal and everyone is treated the same. In the book of James, we learn that we should not judge people by their appearance. We should not be prejudiced. Our Lord says if we give the rich a seat of honor in the house of God and we push the poor to the floor, we have played favorites. Church ought to be the one place on earth where everyone, rich or poor, should feel as if he or she has a place among God's people. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, Romans 12. And we're never to approach the place of worship, Luke 18, like the haughty Pharisee who thinks so highly of himself, looking down our long noses at others, but rather we come as the humble Pharisee. We gather together this morning with different political persuasions and different generations and different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. We're all committed to a common Christ. Fred Craddock, the late Fred Craddock, remembers growing up poor. His 
family even lost their farm. They gather together for that first day of school, and teachers do this. You write an essay. What did you do during the summer? It happened when I was little. It probably still happens today. Where did you go this summer? What did you do this summer? And so all the kids, they were doing a verbal report of what they did that summer. It's just an icebreaker, you know. And one student had gone to Florida and been to the great things in the state of Florida. Another had seen the mighty powerful Niagara Falls. And another one had gone to Washington, D.C. and seen all the historical monuments there and learned about our our country's history in Washington, D.C. And well, Craddock says, little Fred, he was just saved by the bell because he was next and he hadn't done anything all summer long. He hadn't been to Florida. He hadn't been to Niagara Falls. He hadn't been to Washington, D.C. And so, well, he went home to his dad and said, I'm first up. When we go back tomorrow, I didn't do anything but hoe sweet potatoes all summer. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And his dad said, well, if you'll just take the best parts of each of your other student stories and you'll just kind of weave them together into a tale and uh, it'll work out. It'll get us covered. And so he went back to school the next day and, well, Craddock said, and I quote, I was tying them on. He said, first of all, I took everybody to Florida, and then I went up to New York, and then I was in Washington, and he said, I was just on this side of Niagara Falls, and my teacher called me out in the hallway. She said, Fred, you didn't do all that this summer, did you? No, ma'am. Why did you say all that? Because I was embarrassed. Why were you embarrassed? Because all I did was hoe sweet potatoes on the farm all summer long. He said, thinking back, it hadn't been a bad summer. I wished I'd told the truth. I learned to throw a sweet potato so well I could hit a squirrel off a limb and I could keep my little sister screaming all summer <laughs> long. One day, a group of women from the Central Avenue Christian Church in Humboldt, Tennessee, visited the Craddock home. Gave those kids some clothes. There's a little pair of Buster Brown shoes. Now, Craddock later learned there were girls' shoes, but at the moment, it didn't matter. They were exactly his size. His mother said, Fred, now that you've got a pair of shoes, you can go to Sunday school. Well, he didn't want to go to Sunday school. He said, I, I figured that Sunday school would be just like church. What'd you do on vacation? And who are you? And who's your daddy? And how much do you have? But Fred wrote from the first day of wearing those charity girl shoes, I found that church was a different kind of place. I was never, ever embarrassed in church. I don't remember ever feeling any different than or any more or any less than anybody else in church. From the age nine, when I got those charity shoes until now, I've had this little jubilee Going on in my mind, there is no place in the world like church. There is no place in the world like church. Craig remembers his mother was the one that took him to Sunday school, but not his dad. His dad would just sit at home and complain that church made the Sunday afternoon lunch a little late. In fact, his father would say, that church doesn't care about me. They just want another name and another pledge. 
All they want is another name and another pledge. And a visiting evangelist would come to do a revival, and the preacher would take him over to Fred Craddock's house and point to his dad and say, sick him. And uh, the evangelist would have his try, but his dad would not be converted and said, nope, all they want is another name and another pledge. All they want is another name and another pledge. Craddock says, I heard that all my life. I don't care about the church. All they want is another name and another pledge. But one day he didn't say it. One day he was in the veterans hospital. He was down to 73 pounds. He'd had cancer. They'd removed his throat, put a metal tube in. The treatments had burned him to pieces. He could not eat any longer. He could not speak after that. And all around the room, there were potted plants and there were cut flowers. And since he couldn't eat the table that swings for your, your tray, it was just full of, he said, two feet tall cards on that table. And Fred picked up one of those cards and began to read it. Of course, it was from the church that his father had never gone to. And his father, who could not speak, reached for a box of Kleenex, just something to write on. And he wrote a line from Shakespeare. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. In this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. What is your story, Daddy? Fred asked, and he wrote, I was wrong. For every flower in the room, every card on the table, every blossom and the arrangement was a prayer and a hope from the people of God that he refused all of his life. If we miss church as a people of God, as a covenant community of our Lord, then we'll be wrong too. To connect with Christ is to connect with his people. For Paul, they're one and the same. Let us pray. Oh God, your word reminds us today of the importance of being with your baptized people, our church family, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be on mission together with them, not to entertain ourselves, but rather to proclaim that Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning is Lord of the cosmos, co-creator with the Father, as each one of us plunges within those baptismal waters that we die with him and we rise with him and his story becomes our story and that's the only story the church has to tell and none other. May each of us recommit ourselves to Christ and thus by necessity recommit ourselves to God's people, to Christ's bride, to church. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.